The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. If this is your first time checking us out, I'm Eric Fury. This is Gary Reby. As you've listened to us before, remember we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network. We're also available on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Thanks for the new countdown. You're very welcome. <laughs> so <laughs> We had to do a couple cuts of that. <laughs> well, you know, they're not family friendly. <laughs> That's right. There were a few on the cutting room floor <laughs> that were not for public consumption. Yeah. So, all right. I got my attendees poster. I got my ARK investing shirt, my ARK, my ARK invest swag, which I wore this purposefully because I thought you would be wearing yours. And, and I didn't wear mine because I thought you were going to be wearing yours. We, uh, this is my great disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I disappointed you. We do, we do not invest in ARK funds, but uh, we wanted to make sure we were able to get the swag while it was available so we can commemorate this period of time that we've experienced over the last 12 months. Yeah. And so the swag, the shirt, the poster kind of goes along with the theme of today. Yeah. Is... I've sort of just been collecting the swag and Etsy really knows me because it keeps pitching me more and more swag. It's kind of like liquidity. You have to take it when it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were kind of talking one year off the bottom. It's just us today. Maybe we can talk about some of the things that have happened over the last 10 months, maybe 12 months. Just maybe uh, figure in top 10 fashion, you know, top 10 things that have sort of gone on. And some of them we've talked about before and we'll gloss over and some of them we haven't talked about and we'll spend more time on. What do you think? I I like it. So I gave you a bunch. You, I let you order them. Where do you, where do you want to start? Number 10. Number 10. Number 10. That's a good one. The recent family office blow up. Oh, I love that. It's so interesting to me that, I mean, the whole story, I mean, the fact that, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know for sure. It's a lot of hearsay and speculation, but as my understanding is that there was a very large family office that got um, a lot of leverage on a couple different positions from a variety of banks, six or seven different banks is, is, is what, I've, what I've heard last. And with, I don't know, 10 or $15 billion of equity capital, again, all hearsay because family office, there's not a lot of public filings, uh, went around to seven different banks and got Seven, you know, has an, an ISDA agreement with all of them, and and what is an ISDA agreement? So that allows them to deal in like custom uh, swap agreements with the banks, and so um, and a, a swap agreement is essentially, I think, and uh, I may get this a little wrong, but it's essentially an IOU with the bank, and the and the family office will post collateral. It's a way for them to um, maybe make a bet without necessarily revealing they made a bet because the bank owns the shares, the fund doesn't own the shares. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily have to file on the fund. Uh, all of these different things, you know, there's a whole bevy of reasons. One of those reasons is maybe uh, leverage where you post, you know, collateral against the position. It's a levered position. And that seems to be what happened with uh, this particular fund, which was a, a Tiger Cub, which is, um, you know, a pretty well-followed group of hedge fund investors. And so it's sort of interesting. You've got sort of a, um, a guy with an interesting lineage uh, the Archegos fund, or it could be read Arch Egos, which is what it would take to 
get uh, seven turns of leverage on a stock position from a bunch of different banks, um, I guess started to have some trouble with some um, some Asian names that saw some volatility due to I think I think it was the listing or delisting mm-hmm. uh, orders that originally originated in the Trump administration. I guess may not have been changed under the Biden administration yet, and right. then that started to result in some some margin calls and. Uh, so you have ten to fifteen billion dollars of equity capital levered up five to seven times. We don't really know. It's it's hard to say for sure, but um, and then there's some intrigue with the banks how they got together. And they agreed that they were going to uh, try to coordinate the wind down of this position. And uh, well, uh, the game of prisoners dilemma broke down pretty quick. And uh, it sounds like the two biggest U.S. banks were the first ones through the door, and some of the foreign banks were the were the last ones through the door. And um, it looks like some of those banks will be sitting on some losses. So, um, you know, I've read some comments on you know, if, is there anything wrong that happened here? You know with how it worked out, does anything, is, I mean, somebody, a rich guy took on a lot of leverage and lost a lot of money. The banks were kind of ignorant in how they went about it. And some of them lost some money. Uh, you know, I thought sort of nature took its course. I don't know that. Um, yeah. I think maybe there were some initial concerns of are there spillover effects of this, but it seems relatively contained to these banks. It wasn't of a scale that should really be, I mean, it's going to be painful for the banks, but not too. should be manageable. I mean, if it happened in a broader, more systemic way, I mean, it sounds like this guy was able to get, I mean, you make reps and warranties in these, in these agreements that you make with banks. And so maybe there was, maybe they were paying, playing a little fast and loose with the reps and warranties that they were, but, um, and maybe they couldn't possibly know because the guy was a family office. So as far as I know, he's, he's not filing anything to show people what he's got. Um, and maybe maybe something that comes out of this is if you're going to have an ISDA, uh, you know, we need we need more detail on your information, which is just uh, is a smart thing. But you know, not, in my view, not not really a tra- just travesty. I mean, we run a growth, we, we, the- I mean, we run a growth portfolio. We have a handful of names that I would say would be popular with Tiger Cubs, just knowing the way Tiger Cubs tend to invest. And right. we've sort of seen some activity in some of those names that we can't really explain. Right. Doesn't make sense to us. It's like. We mentioned we mentioned Arc, and they trade sort of like Kathy Wood owns them, and Kathy Wood doesn't own them as far as or not meaningful amounts of them as far as we can tell. Right. And so, um, you know, we were kind of scratching our head, going, "Why are some of these names appearing to be in the Kathy Wood bucket when they're not actually in the Kathy Wood bucket?" Well, maybe it's because they're in this Tiger Cub bucket, and a handful of uh, a handful of them got caught up in it. And um, you know, we'll see as it works out, uh, and. You know, sort of some of the bigger ones that were notable in the news, like had co- sort of quietly really run up. Like I don't, some of these I don't, fo- I don't check in on very regularly. And I was surprised to see the, the massive runs, but looks like this particular fund was doubling down, doubling down and scaling up and into the positions. And so I guess that's not surprising. Uh, so, you know, as Charlie Munger says, there's three things that ruin wealthy people. It's liquor, ladies and leverage. And uh, I don't know about the first two vices with this particular instance, but the leverage definitely got this guy. Yeah. Okay, so number nine. Number nine, we have, uh, it's a topic that we've talked about earlier this year. It's the meme stocks. The meme stocks, the tendies, the, 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 the diamond hands and the, you know, paper hands and all that good stuff. Yeah, that's still going on to some extent, but not as much as we've seen before, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't know if people learn lessons. I don't necessarily think so, but it's, you know, I mean, it's still happening. It's, you know, we see stocks get moving for, for no good reason, but we've also seen sort of uh, regulators step in a little bit more closely on some of them to on things where there's truly like, you know, no news and very thinly traded. Like they've, they've certainly, we've certainly put, they've certainly seem to make announcements and step in. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You can necessarily create a similar corner that you could in some of these other names that really, um, well, not if they all trading. Right. I mean, like it's, that would be, that's the fear. that would be difficult to do. But if, if it, uh, some of the smaller, the more liquid names, I mean, you see it every now and then, but I would say not to the extent that we saw it. Yeah. There was a January, whole, February. there was a whole basket of memes, meme stocks in January that were, uh, 25th, 28th was sort of the high. And, uh, I guess sort of remains to be seen if there's a second coming of, of the, meme stock mania what about that leads us to our number eight number eight SPACs. Uh, yeah so SPAC mania sort of continues to a certain extent although it seems somewhat tempered lately right yeah um earlier this year you saw a lot of SPACs trading at premiums to the cash and trust uh you know that's come down a bit where yeah the premium is smaller or it's trading trading at cash so I think some of the mania has has backed off a little. Yeah, it gets harder to get the deal done too if it's trading at cash, right? Because a lot, a lot of these are contingent, like the, the original investors can just ask for their money back at the end. So you need to have what's known as a pipe come in to finance the deal. And if it's not trading particularly well, um, you know, too many investors ask for their money back and you need more of the pipe. And it's sort of a, re, there's some reflexivity there, meaning like what's going on influences the outcome. and and. Uh, it sort of feeds on itself a little bit. So, you know, maybe people, maybe, maybe the, uh, the investors will start to get a little bit more discerning with that. And we've also heard some, some rumblings that there's some inquiries into, into the whole thing. So, you know, and more information about the sponsors and sort of that sort of stuff. And so I wonder, I wonder if there will be this sort of regulatory arbitrage where people can make all kinds of forward looking statements and promises. You know, I wonder if there'll be some increased, oversight or rulemaking around that i quite frankly they probably should i think i think there should be yeah yeah uh and by the way uh pipe for those of you that don't know it's a private investment in public equity yeah so basically when they announce one of these deals they line up somebody to backstop the the funding of the deal um in advance okay cool Uh, that's that's probably enough on that if we're gonna try to get seven more to go through so yeah uh number seven we just have a general broad rally yeah, it's been very strong. It's the rally nobody really saw coming a year ago, and it's the rally that everybody hated for probably the first six months of it, at least, maybe nine, and mm-hmm. then sort of uh, the fear turned to FOMO pretty quick, and then uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of sort of the resulting kicked in where people, in hindsight, said things like, well, it's just the liquidity that mattered and all of this other stuff, and, um, you know, you know, we try not to result here too much. Uh, we only try to look back and try to learn from things if we can. If, uh, uh, and so uh, there are a lot of people who are saying, we're now saying, you know, all the liquidity, it was inevitable we would have this rally. Those, a lot of those people were probably saying, you know, something different a year ago. So, yeah, I think what the, was important about the broad rally was separating the, the plumbing of the financial markets and the virus. Yeah, I mean, we're. I mean, the smarter you were a year ago, the more IQ points you had. You were probably better off if you gave twenty of them back because you you would have uh, probably overcome 
maybe overly complicated the, the issues and, and conflated various issues. And, um, you know, you, you probably would have been better off giving a few IQ points back and just focusing on the money. Kept it simple. Uh, the money flow. Yeah. Number six, crypto. So a year ago in crypto, where were we and where are we today? Oh, so crypto, the, uh, a year ago, the store value argument was not looking very good because <laughs> it had declined. I don't know. The, the Bitcoin, which is the main one, had declined to a, you know, a four-digit price in the mid-four digits somewhere. I don't know where it bottomed out. Uh, but as we sit here now, it's in the high $50,000 range. It's, uh, you know, and so that's been a real story. And it's had various branches. Now they have these non-fungible tokens, which, you know, I kind of understand, but don't fully understand it. I, I understand it like I understand wanting to own a piece of art maybe, or, you know, a baseball card or whatever. I mean, like it's, as I understand it, the appeal is collector's item and you own the original, but um, these things are going for an awful lot of money. So I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be lying if I said I understood them, but the, the rally in crypto has sort of also been, it's been understandable. Like we, are very sympathetic to the idea of hard non-government money in, in various forms that it would take. Cause the, cause one of the things we thought early on was that the incentive here is to expand balance sheets, pump money, pump money, pump money. And you have a buyer of last resort and there'll be a lot of money creation. And that was an argument for uh, hard assets and non-government money. Um, crypto, is hard because it's hard to do it safely. So like there was an article this weekend about two very, very popular uh, apps where people will buy and sell crypto and, you know, people getting hacked and having the accounts drained. And, you know, I look at that, the first thing I did was open one of those apps and see if mine was still, you know, I have a little bit in it. The first thing I did too. In an app and I was like, well, let me see if it's still there. Cause like, it's a genuine concern. And then my second thought was, well, if it happened, what's my recourse? Cause it's not a bank, it's, you know, Somebody hacks your account at a major financial institution, or you know, drains it. You call them up, and they put the money back uh, within a certain. If you call, if you notice it, call within a certain period of time. They just put the money back. They, you know, and, and you have real recourse. And this is sort of the if if you're looking for non-government money, you're looking for lawlessness. Also, I right. mean, so um, what's the recourse? And it's sort of, um, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of non-government money, but. Um, a lot of the infrastructure in and around it um, really needs to be worked on. But that said, you're also seeing some widespread adoption, right? Yeah. It's sort of, it appears to be mainstreaming, uh, you know, but there's still a lot of distance between here and, and, and mainstream. So what do you think? Do we beat that one out? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, number five, leadership change in the market. Yeah, so it was around September of last year, you saw a pretty dramatic shift away from the the tech leaders to you know things that had lagged the financial institutions and sort of energy. Um, some of it may have some legs, some of it may not. Uh, you know, it depends. Uh, but what do you think that's attributed to? It's hard to say. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember now when Democrats were bad for energy stocks, for instance. So they were bad for big oil. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they've done nothing but go up since the election uh, and January, whatever, when the, uh, the uh, Georgia election happened. It wasn't January 6th. It was a different day in January. Uh, pretty sure. Um, 
anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. Um, but, you know, it seems to me to make some sense because, you know, the Democrats can, can help big oil do, can help do what big oil couldn't do, which is um, sort of bring supply discipline in certain ways and, you know, Keystone Pipeline, things like that, um, climate initiatives. You know, you start to construct the supply, you know, the underlying can actually have a real price in, in the market. And cure for high prices is typically high prices, but when capital was essentially free, um, there's no discipline on that. So um, it seems like discipline could be there from a regulatory point of view. Now, you know, prospectively, what does that mean? Is it Does it hold itself? Does it sustain? And does it still have all the same features it's normally had? I think the answer is probably yes. Um, you know, financials, people are thinking maybe there's going to be higher inflation, but and maybe that'll flow through. Um, I sort of wonder if the earning power is more permanently impaired. Uh, and it's just, you know, they were... Um, beaten down pretty low. And, you know, there's at the prospect of some inflation, some excitement. Uh, you know. But again, with the banks, it comes down to you know, what are their net interest margins going to look like? And what's the argument for them to expand meaningfully? And so it's a funny thing, like, like, like given the current environment, the NIMS are going to be, should be lower than they were January 1st of 2020. Right. And so, but the prices are generally higher than they were January 1st of 2020. And so some of that is the discount rates falling. So you're getting some valuation, you know, from, from maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe lower discount rates, but, um, but you know, the NIMS are going to be lower. Um, it's not a foregone conclusion. Uh, like if, if the Fed started to fight inflation a year and a half from now, I don't know what the rest of the curve would do. So, it's not a foregone conclusion to me that the that increased earnings potential, which is seems what seems to be being priced in, is that that may actually happen. But you know, the market doesn't almost doesn't care what I think. So <laughs> you know, it's you know, as a <clears throat> investor, you look for. I mean, we don't really do trades, so cyclicals to me tend to be more of a trade. Um, but you look for ways you can make responsible investments with things that have an element of cyclicality to them. And so that's something we've actively tried to do. Um, we beat that. Yep. Number four, yeah, we've kind of talked about this one. That's the Robin Hood, Reddit, Wall Street bets. You can kind of lump that in. The proletariat revolution the that, 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 that took down some, <laughs> yeah. some, some high profile funds, at least for a moment. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think what the, one of the thing, one of the legacies of lockdown, I think will be that it's bred a new generation of investors and, um, you know, right now they're speculators, but eventually a good number of them will turn into investors and getting a lot of people thinking about their finances, thinking about saving and investing money. You know, even if, even if it doesn't work out so well in the beginning, getting somebody started on that path earlier is better. And these, this does tend to be a younger crowd. So, you know, a bunch of 20 somethings, you know, burning STEMI money on meme stocks, like, you know, well, it also got people thinking about market structure and what it meant to go long or to go short and how everything, you know, the amount of leverage interplays with the market and how it could either heat your home or burn your house down. There you go. And so it's, I think the conversations around it have been good and hopefully people have gotten a better education as a result. Yeah. I think there's been, you know, some misinformation in and around it, like the conspiracy theory stuff around, why trading was halted, the, the explanations I think are pretty are simpler than that. I think the brokers got margin calls from their master entity 
because there was too much risk in specific brokers mm-hmm. and they couldn't come out and just say that because, you know, um, the minute you're talking about your liquidity is the minute you have no liquidity right. is, is how it tends to work out. So, you know, that's, you know, just what it is, but, um, and, you know, I mean, like the high frequency trading stuff that people talk about. And, well, oh, people like a good conspiracy theory. Payment for order flow really sounds really cloak and daggery and dark pool. Like the language in and around this sounds ominous. And, but like, I think, you know, in my mind, there's never been a better time to be a retail investor. At least not in the U.S. Yeah, at least not in the U.S. Like, like I think retail investors today, it used to be gated, you know, high commissions, you know, all this sort of stuff. And now, I mean, if you want to be a responsible retail investor, it's never been less expensive to be one. And that's a great thing. So um, we feel we love it. Uh, okay. Number three, regime change. Oh, this is just regime change in Washington. So we could have coupled this re- with regime change in the market, right? But we didn't. So, no, okay. I mean, now we're looking at different tax proposals and like lots more things are floated than actually get done. Um, Yep, we had one stimulus plan pass already. Now we're talking about an infrastructure bill and then potentially another stimulus bill. I mean, my question though is if you're raising, if you're going to spend four trillion here and you're going to raise three trillion over here, can you really call that stimulus or is it wealth redistribution? And I'm not saying that like it's a good or bad thing. It just it's just what it is. And so, um, and maybe some is warranted, but um, you know, what do you like? And so, and then. If it is wealth redistribution, you know, you've got a finite, I think you've got a finite runway for that because it's hard to campaign for re-election on that. Um, and so if that's what the real plan is, you've got, I don't know, probably 18 months or so to maybe even less because then you get into to campaign, push your agenda to get into the campaign season. You've got maybe this calendar year to, to try to do something and then it's an election re-election campaign and Whew, it's going to be, uh, but this regime change is, you know, it's gotten people in a pro-cyclical mood. So that's resulted in a lot of the shift that we've seen. And there are cyclicals. I mean, we look at some of the highest quality cyclicals and stupid me passed on some of them and, you know, they've done really well. And, uh, you know, here I am kicking myself over it, but, you know, what can you do? You know, it's, uh, you learn your lessons and you move on and you try to do better next time. Yep. And so, Anyway, so we got regime change in Washington, results in a whole bunch of different things that result in sort of some regime change a little bit in the market. But I wonder if uh, 18 months from now we'll be in a stalemate and sort of back where we started. Could be. Let's talk again 18 months. See you in 18 months. <laughs> Number two, the vaccine. Yeah. Our vaccines. So, and should we lump that together with number one? Sure. Number one is the virus. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if that's not the story of the last... 12 to 15 months. I don't know what it is. Right. Right. And so, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that you needed to forecast the virus or the timeline for a vaccine to get the market calls. Right. Um, we talked about that with, uh, and we, that's, we felt like that was overcomplicating things because all that, all that we thought was important was that there would be an end date at some point. And so, you know, the, the, the real story is the, is the virus. The real story is the vaccine. There's winners and losers and all that. I would say, um, winner on the winners list, it's probably the U.S. and China. China because they had the best health outcomes uh, supposedly, um, and their economies held up very well. The U.S. because our economy has also held up very well, and we while we did not have the best health outcomes within 12 months, we had several 
working highly effective vaccines on the market. And so, um, you know, if you put a highly structured society with one task, they're going to, they're going to beat an unstructured society. Um, but the upside that we have embedded in our economy was able in, in our society was able to result in several highly efficacious vaccines coming to market within right. a year. Yeah. And I would view that as a win and a triumph. And I mean, we're, we're going to be clocking over a hundred million people who've been jabbed any, if, either if not today, then tomorrow or the next. And so um, that's, that's a, I would view as a success. Um, whereas in, in Europe, I mean, I don't know what's going on over there, but it's, um, it's a mess. It's a little different than what's going on over here. Yeah. It's a little different than what's going on over here. So, um, is that it? I mean, so that rounds out our top 10 over the past 12 months. Uh, it's been an eventful 12 months and fun. Uh, what did we miss anything? No, I think at a high level, you know, I sort of wonder if the world, you know, something has changed more permanently about the world over the last 12 months. Are we, is the return to normalcy, you know, is that sort of people projecting their wishes for a return to 2019 onto the world? And I think that's an interesting conversation because I think, I feel like, I feel like 2020 may have been some sort of watershed moment and I don't know for what, but, um, you know, I, his comment to me the other day was, is, is, was it, is 2021 going to be the first year of the 21st century? Yeah. And I can't, and I can't claim credit for that. That's, that's a Peter Thiel thought. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> but I think he may be right. And, and, and you know, I mean, nine 11 happened 20 years ago and I'm still, I actually went on an airplane a couple of weeks ago. And as I was going through the airport, I saw the take, throw, take off my shoes and do the airport safety theater. And, you know, is, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened that was accelerated due to the virus, more here to stay than not, you know, and are we going to be looking back on this as now, you know, this is the first year of the 21st century where we're embracing some of these things. Like people have been talking about telework since the nineties. Right. Um, a lot of these uh, FinTech things, you know, the adoption of FinTech has been accelerated mm -hmm. by the virus. People don't want to touch cat, you know, like all, all of that sort of stuff. So, it's an interesting thing to think about um, the implicate the investment implications of those things. I think are kind of unclear, but you know, from a broader perspective, you know, as we look back over the last twelve months, I mean, I think the the one thing that is it's just rapid change, yep, disruption and rapid change, and it just occurred in a different way than we would other. Usually, disruption occurs with technology. Here, we had disruption that occurred some other way, and that was and rapid change occurred a different way too. Yep. I agree. All right. So that's our top 10 list. That's our top 10 over the last 12 months. Send your love notes to me and send your hate mail to Eric. <laughs> and uh, what else? What do we do? I think that's it. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, we'll have some guests over the next couple of weeks. Yep. And uh, yeah, like Gary said, send your love notes to him. Hate mail to me. It'll go right to the junk. And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Um, remember, you can check us out anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at snn.network, or you can also check us out at the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash SNNWire. Thanks, everyone.
The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.